The Minnesota Freedom Fund was founded in 2016 to pay criminal bail and immigration bonds for those who cannot otherwise afford to. They seek to end discriminatory, coercive, and oppressive jailing. On May 25th, following the death of George Floyd, thousands took to the streets to protest in Minneapolis. Greg Lewin was one of them. My name is Greg Lewin, he, him pronouns, and I'm the interim executive director for the Minnesota Freedom Fund. Greg knew pretty quickly that he needed to make a decision. All around him, police officers were arresting protesters. At the time, Greg was one of the only folks working for the Minnesota Freedom Fund. He knew he could either stay and protest or get to work on paying bails for all those being arrested. Amidst all the anger and pain that many were feeling, something wonderful also started to happen. Over 900,000 donations from around the world, totaling more than $30 million, started pouring in. And online, celebrities like Mark Ruffalo took to Twitter to amplify the work being done at the Minnesota Freedom Fund and directed followers where to donate. The amount of money in such a short time was staggering. And to manage the necessary bail funds for so many meant scaling operations at Minnesota Freedom Fund quickly. All the while sitting in an international spotlight at the epicenter of a renewed social justice movement. I'm Megan Keeney Anderson, and this is The Growth Show. All right, Greg, thank you so much for being here today. I wonder if we could just begin by having you tell us a little bit about the Minnesota Freedom Fund. So the Minnesota Freedom Fund grew out of an initiative of our founder, Simon Cecil, in 2016, who identified a critical need both that exists nationwide, but that we can act on here locally in Minnesota for mm-hmm. pretrial justice um, right now, both in county jails and for immigration for folks being detained by ICE. There are um, many situations where folks have a dollar amount set on their head and they, it's called here bail or bond that they need to pay if they want to be able to be out of jail or out of a detention center to be able to fight their case in freedom. Um, And so what this is, is this presumption of innocence that is claimed in our constitution only exists for a particular subset of people often. And those are people who can afford to basically pay to play and buy their way to pretrial freedom. And the Minnesota Freedom Fund comes in both to pay for those who cannot afford to so that to restore that that right of presumption of innocence and a fair trial and also to kind of make folks take a moment and ask what is going on here how is this possible and how did this become common sense in this country almost uniquely among countries in the world yeah so presumption of innocence but only if you can pay for it basically that's right i i think it's it's such a unique but also incredibly like pertinent and powerful thing to zero in on in this process because it's it sort of permeates throughout everything right but there's this one moment that is so blatantly inequitable and that is kind of the crux of someone's ability to defend themselves and to have due process i'm curious about how you got into this line of work to begin with how did you first see this as a unique challenge that is solvable so there's not a clear, you know, clean 
story and narrative for what put me here that there are a couple pieces that really stand out that it may, it's hard to imagine myself being here without. Yeah. One of those is one of the first jobs I worked in college uh, at a diner where it's now gone. Lindy's Red Lion and Bone Appetit on 21st and I, I Street. I can picture it. It's like, yep. just by that name, I know exactly what it's yep. like. Yep. Uh, and and Lindy, the, the owner, had always had a policy of hiring uh, former felons, mm. ex-convicts, to work the kitchen. And I worked the downstairs carryout there for a few years. And the, the person who became kind of my best buddy in the kitchen there was telling me about his experience and how he had done time for um, defending his sister against two people and had had done 17 years for what happened after that. And he was in his early 40s. I at the time was 18, 19. And that realization that somebody had spent the amount of time in jail that I had been alive um yeah kind of took my breath away and it's this this is the sort of thing where these stories are all are all over our our communities but as a you know a, a, a white kid of two uh academic professorial parents growing up in the suburbs of Delaware um there were many things kind of insulating me from all of that, starting in school with honors tracking and gifted tracking. Like those stories didn't really get to enter my life um, yeah. in that way. And so just kind of being confronted with 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 that really stands out to me as kind of a, a humanizing moment for for, quite frankly, an environment that 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 tells us that criminals are bad and that you know, you don't need to have been convicted of a crime to be a criminal, right? If the second you're arrested, you're a criminal, um, according to a lot of uh, culture in this in this country. I think what's interesting, too, is the the other side of that equation is also represented in your story, which is once somebody has served time, the idea or the concept should be that they have paid their debt. And in reality, it is incredibly hard on the other side of that to get a job, to rebuild your life, to uh, kind of survive that interruption uh, that you just went through. And so I think it's it's just interesting to sort of see that full spectrum in that early story. And that that's part of why we try to um, pay and honor a request as as soon as we can once we've kind of lined up support, once we've asked what does this person need to connect back to family and loved ones, um, and and are there additional you know needs that they would want to see met? I mean, housing is is something mm-hmm. that's so so critical right now. We've been seeing a lot of camps here in Minnesota being cleared pretty brutally recently um, for yeah. for folks posted out there, and it. We know that jail is trauma and we just we have to keep saying it, that jail is trauma and that no matter how long you're in, you always come out with less than you went in with. Yeah. Um, you might, Whether that's custody of your children, whether that's your job. I, we just greeted a man whose demolitions job knew he was dependable and, and waited the two weeks that he was in. Um, but 
all all of the the money he's getting from that job are going toward his wife's medical bills, right? Like these are people. Oh my god, yeah, yeah, complex people with you know all these facets of their lives, and you sort of can take that away in a single moment. Yeah. All right. Well, so let's get into where you are now. So on May 25th of this year, George Floyd was killed, kind of a watershed moment for the entire country. And what followed was just worldwide protest. Um, And Minnesota became the epicenter of that. What do you remember about that day and that night? So what really sticks in my mind is I think would have been the following the following day. So we had set aside for what for us had been a a large chunk of the money we had in reserve to say, we expect Mm -hmm. protests. We want to make sure that we are prioritizing that and we don't want to have any kind of cap on how we can help. And, and we're just kind of thinking through how best we could be responsive to what we knew or suspected would, would be kind of heavy repression headed toward protesters. Um, But I was one of those protesters. And so the day after at Lake and Snelling across, you know, by by a target across from the police precinct, I got a text um, from the group I was trying to support saying, hey, we really need help uh, holding down this intersection. And I thought, oh, it's a marshalling need. This is a situation where we want to make sure folks aren't getting hit by vehicles to make sure that the folks are staying safe. And as I pulled up on my bike, um, the tear gas rounds started landing, um, triple canisters being fired by grenade tubes that dispersed midair and were clunking around cars. And all of a sudden it was, oh, this is not a marshalling situation. Um, This is something very different. Wound up, you know, grabbing some shopping carts and trying to keep this group of kids like these high school age looking kids who were saying, don't let them out of the precinct. They're going to arrest more people. Don't let them out. Um, And pushing shopping carts into place to protect from rubber bullets. There was a journalist next to me who got hit with a rubber bullet in the leg. And yeah, everything all of a sudden it kind of. Time doesn't slow down, by the way. Maybe it does for some people who have special matrix lives, but uh, <laughs> time doesn't slow down at all in those moments. No. It, it, it it definitely insists on keeping going and <laughs> quite quickly. Well, I think what's so fascinating about it is you you have to, you are living through it right in that moment, literally seeing the rubber bullets and you know feeling the the tear gas and at and having to process that experience personally. And then at the same time, without any delay, because time doesn't slow down, having to react and maintain this organization and respond to the needs simultaneously. And and it quickly became clear that it was not tenable to be in both spaces at once if I wanted to honor the organization um, mm. in any capacity, just you know, at first it would be, well, I'm, I'm sure on the phone quite a lot uh, as as I'm, you know, walking down the street. And then suddenly it was no, no, uh, we're getting a Bernie Sanders treatment in over the course of 72 hours. A million people are donating. Um, yeah. 800 people just signed up to volunteer. Oh, OK. Yeah. Pause. 
but you can't pause. You have to go. Um, okay, we need to tell them to to stop stop giving. We never we never asked for for donations. Who can we tell them to give to? Okay, and just having those conversations and realizing too um, that as you said, uh, folks are learning who we are now. But at the time, it was if you want to help protesters, give to the Minnesota Freedom Fund, right? Right, right. Where were these donations coming from? So it seems as though it all started from celebrities um, taking this viral um, from some initial initial kind of rounds on on other social media platforms. And then on Twitter, kind of a bunch of celebrities making challenges and matches um, yeah. for all over the place. And often it was it would just be this blast, right, of just support the protesters, Minnesota Freedom Fund. And it stands out to me. Shout out to Mark Ruffalo. Um, I yeah. just remember seeing in that in this tide of attention, Mark Ruffalo saying the Minnesota Freedom Fund pays criminal bails and immigration bonds for folks who can't afford. It. And I was like, oh, Mark Ruffalo read our mission statement. Amazing. Yeah. Like, put some work it's a in. Holistic, yeah. holistic picture. So how just for context, because I, I don't know that people know how big was your team back then? One and a half folks um, was the staff. One and a half folks. Uh-huh. We had, That's actually we had smaller an executive than even director, than I thought. And we had um, a part-time bail payer. Um, and the part-time bail payer was partially there as a function of COVID. Um, our yeah. volunteers had been paying had been paying our bails up, up through then. And we wanted to limit their the number of people we were bringing into jails and detention centers, which as I'm sure you know are a vector of, of pandemic. Yeah. What, what did that, I just, I'm picturing you sitting in a room with all of this chaos going on around you with one and a half people on staff with the dollars coming in and just the surreal, I mean, this went, this year has been hard in its own right. And then that sort of national and global spotlight comes in where the organization does go viral and, and everybody is talking about everybody who is aghast about the situation and wanting to do something is looking to you to be the conduit for that action. What did that spotlight feel like and how did your team actually deal with it? Oh, absolutely terrifying. I mean, we we, <laughs> we are not right seasoned um, professionals in this space. We were we were there because it felt really important to show up and we were there primarily as as volunteers as as folks just trying to to push against what felt like an impossibly big system there were kind of yeah. two push pulls in in seeing beyond the attention just the kind of new material reality of okay we now actually might be resourced to fight this thing was kind of one of the the first pushes like can we can we empty a, a jail of folks there pre-trial, right? Like, can we do this big, this big thing? Yeah. And that was kind of quickly paired or or checked by a reminder that we are still up against Goliath, that we're still David in this. Um, yeah. This, you know, as we, you know, worked with a team of law students and realized, oh, actually, there was more than a hundred million dollars in bail sitting in Hennepin public safety facility, sitting in one of the jails that we work with or that, and those jails budgets exceed this windfall that, that we had been given um, yeah. each year by county allocations. Right. 
Um, more money than you ever imagined in the world is is still not enough. You know, it's astronomical. And and juggling that kind of checked perception and and recalibration of of where we stood on this terrain with this massive attention, some from really good faith folks who are saying, how are you helping? What are you doing? And we want to answer those questions and we want to yeah. answer them in a way that that shows action that we were taking. Right. Um, yeah. And then there were the not so good faith actors uh, who were hoping to generate attention in a way that used that language I was talking about, that they are bail they are putting criminals onto the streets. Violent criminals are being put onto the streets right. and it's they, they don't really aren't really interested in hearing about constitutional language about the presumption of innocence or racialized policing and bail setting informing who is in those jails. Yeah. So you very rapidly, more rapidly than most other organizations will ever go through, experience this windfall and and also at the same time, this drastic increase in need. What were some of the steps that you took to begin scaling up as an organization and begin kind of evolving the way that you approached your work? So one of the advantages of paying bails is that there's a time delay between when you pay a bail and when you get the money back. Um, and what that means is you can scale up the activity level. You can try to meet new challenges and meet protest cases that are tens of thousands of dollars when before you were paying a thousand dollars a day and just covering some misdemeanors. Right. And you can expand that across the core of your work as well. You know, no more caps on on immigration payments and and county bail payments being scaled up as well. Right. And you can do that yep. and tr and then put focus on building infrastructure that will let you handle that on the back end um, because you have a little time before everything kind of cycles through. Um, yeah. And so this this week we are moving to a brand new data system for our bail tracking and bail payments. And it's going to completely change the game in terms of how responsive and how uh, nimble we can be in that space. Yeah. But you've also got to invest a little bit in the organization in order to enable it to help more folks and yeah. um, to be able to respond at this level of scale that you're heading into. And it involved in tremendous, I want to lift up the work of our, of our board during that time as well. I mean, mm. we, we didn't have a finance manager in, in June. We had a treasurer who had a lot of chops um, in nonprofit development spaces and was able to just kind of put his full-time job on pause and just do yeah. some heroic lifts um, for us. And that happened for every single, every single board member was, was just doing multiple jobs at once and just setting aside or, or <laughs> pulling long nights and just putting in so much work to make yeah. sure that we were able to kind of try and say yes to as much as possible and just are we communicating about things? Are we uh, are both both in terms of social media, but then who in community do we need to be talking to right now? Right. right? What partners do you need? All of that. Mm -hmm. 
what what does your like going back to you talked about getting a new database and how big of a game changer that's going to be what does the technology stack of of an organization like yours look like right now um well luckily enough this system is kind of being built purpose built for bail funds so it's going mm-hmm. to really um be kind of basically case like crm software right um just with a very yeah. specific lens um but before that it was it was google sheets right yeah it, so much of, of the bail work lived in a single uh neurotically managed spreadsheet <laughs> You are not the only organization or company that has started on Google Sheets, so mm-hmm. no shame there. So uh, as an interim executive director and leader for all these new operations, what have you learned about yourself through this rapid growth period? I think well, something, something I've, I've, I've really learned is where to let stress live. Changing <laughs> from a... Sp- base of just being purely reactive and kind of everything is a crisis everything is behind like who is going to be disappointed when this does or doesn't happen and trying to shift into how do we feel about the work we did this week and how can we make it better next week it seems like a simple question to ask but is a really different question to emotionally actually internalize as as like a mindset um so being able to to have the stress live in a place where it's just isn't allowed in in the same ways um is really important you know in my last job i was i was a support data analyst um who who helped with the supervisor and I'm somebody who kind of reflexively wants to say yes to everything. Uh, people pleaser, right? Just yep. want want to give people what, what they want and learning that you don't really get to speak for yourself when you're an executive director. Like, I don't get to be Greg when I speak. I have yeah. to be Greg from the Minnesota Freedom Fund when I speak and how that changes that dynamic and how you can just say no and not feel the need yeah. to qualify it um, because it's what the organization needs in that moment. Um, and, and holding other people's disappointment differently um, is really a different thing. Um, the politics of it are, are different for as somebody who had preferred to be tucked away with spreadsheets before um, kind of being, being right there uh, kind of on the front lines, talking, talking things out with folks is, is a different environment. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that before. I hadn't thought about it like that. That is an evolution. That is a skill to learn that people don't often, um, you know, don't often think of. Do you have any advice for how companies can partner with groups like the Minnesota Freedom Fund or better help with this larger cultural movement? So I think this starts with education as advocacy. There's a lot that needs to be explained so so the best ways to connect with us as an organization are to help us educate folks on these systems of oppression that that are just a a fulcrum point of inequality in in our communities um, and that are kind of trying to take more from those who have the least. Um, so so 
we are always looking for for folks to to help us kind of spread that message and somewhere i would look would be houston um where where it's happened through litigation not through legislation but but in terms of ways to to help i mean we had gone back and forth about should we fundraise should we keep fundraising and having now um allocated you know 4 million dollars in county bails uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars in immigration bonds since the uprising having distributed millions of dollars to national partners other community bond funds to do rapid protest support and having set aside millions of dollars to do fall freedom day which is underway right now where we have uh, over 65 folks out from immigration detention working alongside nine other community bond funds um the answer is yes i think i think do give because we are putting that money to work okay so on that note maybe a good final question is where can people learn about the minnesota freedom fund and get involved so in terms of learning more about cash bail, I think we, we actually have an explainer up now on our website on what is cash bail, how does it work, and, and where does the Minnesota Freedom Fund fit in. We also now have an immigration explainer in the same way. What is the immigration s- system? What is the bond system specifically? And where are we there? So if folks want to learn more, I would direct them to our website. Um, as starting points, there's also an excellent film by Brave New Films called The Bail Trap that I would recommend to anyone as kind of a starting point to just learn more about this issue and, and, and what it does. That's a great starting point. All right. So listeners and myself, we have some homework to do. Greg, it's, it's just a tremendous story. It's a tremendous human rights story. And from an operations perspective, it's a great growth story on how you can respond to that kind of urgency and managed to scale in a matter of months. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate this. Today's episode was written and produced by Matthew Brown. Additional editing came from Pizza Shark Productions. Our theme music is from Tyler Litwin. And the music you're hearing right now comes from Synchronize. You could follow the show over on our Twitter at The Growth Show or send us a note to hello at thegrowthshow.com. As always, I'm Megan Keeney Anderson, and thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>